or to turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther, to the ten chapters of the book of Esther, and we'll see if we can cover one, two, or more of them this evening as we continue looking at the life of Esther, Ahasuerus, Mordecai, Haman, among others that are recorded in this book. Before we look into Esther, there's only one point of introduction, two points of introduction I want to make to you. The first is a general, the second will be more specific. Why do I want to take you through the book of Esther slowly and emphasize what's happening in this book? And I want the answer from the psalm that we read this morning. that men may know that thou alone art Jehovah and rulest over the earth. Psalm 83, the last verse. When we look at the book of Esther, it is a record of what God does in the lives of his people for their defense and salvation. When you look at a man like Sam Jones, you look at a man like Jeff Oley, who in our congregation are experiencing tribulations greater than the rest of us, at least based on the way I measure tribulations. <laughs> we may all have our own weaknesses, but I'd say that uh, I should be able to bear mine more easily than they theirs. When we look at men like that, what do they need and what do we need to encourage us to have hope in the face of adversity? a greater confidence that God is overall. That why do you think, <laughs> do I emphasize that theme? That is the basis for faith. The greater confidence you have in God and the greater delight you have in the way that God deals with men, the easier it is to bear up under the adversity and afflictions of this life. That is why I emphasize this. Paul said in Romans 15:4, the Old Testament was written that we through the scriptures might learn patience and comfort. And from seeing patience and comfort taught there and learning it ourselves, we might have hope. I want your hope increased by seeing God's hand in the affairs of men. How tender his hand can be toward his own and how wonderful his dealings are with those who aren't his own. If you can rejoice in the way God deals with men, it'll be easy to take whatever this world can throw at you. You know that he's going to over undertake for you and overtake them is the way we can look at it. The second point of introduction is let's make a quick review of the first four chapters. Watch how quick. Chapter one is the demise of Vashti. Chapter two is the rise of Esther. Chapter 3 is the plot of Haman. And chapter 4 is the plan of Mordecai. Now that's quick, isn't it? Chapter 5, let's go. You should know all that. We've spent six sermons on it. If you don't know it by now, you'll never learn it. You know it. Chapter 5, verse 1. Let's just take a minute with chapter 4 so that we know what's happening in chapter 5. Remember, King Ahasuerus is king of the Persian Empire. A decree has gone forth that every Jew in the world is to be exterminated. 
Esther is queen. She's a Jew. <laughs> the king doesn't know she's a Jew. She's kept that information from him to this point in time. Mordecai, her cousin who has raised her from a child, recommends that she go into the king and beg for mercy for the Jews. She says, wait a minute, Mordecai. Do, did you forget that any man or any woman who enters into the king's inner court without a previous invitation will be killed on the spot? Unless he raises his golden scepter toward that person, which shows that that person has found favor in his eyes. And Mordecai comes back and gives three reasons in verses 13 and 14 why she ought to go ahead and do it anyway. And then she says, okay, I'll do it. If you fast and pray for me for three days, there's no way I'm going to go near that inner court unless you fast and pray for three days. And so they did that in verse 17 of chapter 4. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him, and that is to get all the Jews together that were in Shushan, the capital of the Persian Empire, and pray and fast in sackcloth and ashes for three days and three nights. Now we can look at the first verse of chapter 5. Now it came to pass on the third day. You'd be amazed at how much writing has been given on that phrase so far. Now it says the third day. And you know the emphasis we place in Scripture on the third day? Jesus said he would rise from the grave the third day. Now, how long did Esther, the Jews, and Mordecai fast and pray? Three days and three nights. Can you rise the third day and it still be three days and three nights between? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. You have to be able to say that. If I was to ask you right now, what is the third day from now, what would you say, generally speaking, unless you really wanted to give me trouble? Wednesday. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Now, right now, it is 7 o'clock, 6.45, Sunday evening. 6.45, Wednesday evening. How many days and how many nights will be between now and then? Three days and three nights. And that would be the third day. All the writing that is done on Esther chapter 5 and verse 1 is to try to overthrow Matthew 12 and 40, where Jesus said he would be in the ground three days and three nights. You wouldn't believe the time commentators will spend on the first clause of Esther 5 and verse 1. Let's give an example. Let's assume that Esther sends her message, we've got to assume some point in time, back to Mordecai at noon on a particular day of the week. Let's assume Sunday, just because today is Sunday. And she says, I want you to fast three days and three nights for me. So they start their fasting. And then verse 1 tells us, on the third day she went into the king. When would that be? Wednesday. If she went in after 12 noon, would there have been three days and three nights? Yes. Would it still be the third day? Yes. Let's move on. Let's move on now. Is that deep or is that simple? Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel. Now what were the Jews dressed in for three days and three nights? Sackcloth and ashes. Now this morning I taught you people that when you pray, you do the best you can as wisely as you can. You trust the Lord for the rest. 
Should she have gone into the king's court in sackcloth and ashes? No, she did change her apparel. The Lord expects us to do the best we can with the intelligence he's given us. Esther put on her royal apparel for beauty and for dignity. She would appear not only as his beautiful wife, but as the queen of Persia. It's going to be hard to refuse that woman dressed that way. That, that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house, over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house, over against the gate of the house. Verse 2, And it was so, when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, that she obtained favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. That motion right there on the part of King Ahasuerus meant that Esther was going to live another day. If he hadn't raised that scepter off of his lap or off the throne, wherever he held it in his right hand, she would have been dead. She took her life into her hands. She said that in verse 16, if I perish, I perish. She knew she was taking her life into her hands. But she approached the throne anyway, trusting in the Lord to whom they had prayed, and the Lord moved the heart of the king to receive her. Verse 3, Then said the king unto her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther? And what is thy request? It shall be even given thee to the half of the kingdom. Now I like this. You know, the Lord doesn't only change the heart of King Ahasuerus to accept a woman who hadn't been invited he moves the heart of King Ahasuerus to say, Wife, Queen, Esther, what is thy request? I'll give you your petition even to the half of the kingdom. Now, half of the kingdom is hyperbole used in Scripture. I hope you all understand that. I mean, all she would have had to do is say, Well, I want the treasury divided in half. I want the army divided in half. I want your wardrobe divided in half. That's hyperbole. You'll notice in Mark chapter 6 and verse 23, one time Herodias' daughter danced before Herod. You know, just a little girl did a dance before Herod. And Herod, we don't know how little she was, the daughter of Herodias anyway, she didn't know what to ask for. She had to go ask mommy. So she wasn't too old or too intelligent. I think most of our 15-year-old girls, if they heard the king say to them, you can have whatever you want, they'd have a list so long, so fast, the king would be dumbfounded. So I don't think she was very old for that reason. I don't think women have changed a whole lot in 2,000 years. But this daughter danced, and Herod was so pleased with the dance, he said, I'll give you whatever you want, even to half the kingdom. It's just hyperbole. He was expecting, you know, to give her some fine horse or something to put in her stable. He wasn't expecting to split the kingdom down the middle and have her an equal partner with him. But the point is this. The Lord moved the heart of the king, didn't he? So the king was willing to, to do whatever Esther wanted. She obtained such favor in his eyes. He looked at her and he said, I haven't called her in here in 30 days, that poor woman. I'll give her whatever she wants. Esther needed that kind of encouragement. But listen, Esther's too smart. Esther's too smart to ask right now. This to me is slick. You want to learn how to deal with people? You know, some... We read the Bible sometimes. We don't get a whole lot. We read it too fast. We read it too fast. Why did Esther put off the king for somewhere around 30 hours? 
Very good reason if you know human nature and if you know how to influence people. Why did she do that? See, the king right here is asking her, verse 4, but notice what Esther says. And Esther answered, If it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. He offers to give her whatever her petition is, even to half the kingdom. She doesn't ask. She says, if it seems good to you, just come to the banquet that I've prepared for you and Haman. And as we're going to see, they get to the banquet, and he asks, he offers again. And she says, if it seems good to you, come to the banquet tomorrow that I've prepared for you and Haman. Then the third day, he's going to ask, he's going to offer again, and finally she'll do it. Let me, let me tell you why. Now, this is just common sense. I mean, the Holy Spirit doesn't even put it in parentheses here to tell us why. It, you know, the Holy Spirit does expect us to draw some conclusions from Scripture. You can dramatize an event to add weight to the seriousness of the request that you're about to make so that the king was very much prepared that a very serious request was going to be given by Esther. She just wasn't coming in there asking for a new wardrobe or coming in there asking for a new colt that had just been born to one of the king's stall stallions don't have colts, do they? <laughs> to one of the king's mares. You know, what would a queen ask for? What would a queen want? What she's doing is she's building up the seriousness of the matter so that when finally the king hears the request, He's going to know how important it is to Esther. And when you see his response, she had her effect. She had her effect in raising the seriousness of the king toward her request. Verse 5, Then the king said, this is in answer to her invitation, Cause Haman to make haste, that he may do as Esther hath said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Verse 6. And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed. Then answered Esther and said, My petition and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition, and to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king hath said. What did the king said? Give me your petition. She said, I'll do it tomorrow. I promise tomorrow. I promise there won't be a third banquet of wine. Just two. She's building up the seriousness. You just can't come home sometime, wives, or wait for your husband to come home. Let's use it. <laughs> I hope wives aren't coming home and finding their husbands there. Other than Jim and Marlene Edwards, no one does that in our congregation. And they both understand that, and so do the rest of you. When your husband comes home, if you want something from your husband, women, the smartest thing is not to simply hit him when he comes across the threshold with your request. Build up the seriousness of it. There's something I want to talk to you about. And then don't tell him. And then wait. And, make, and look serious, and be sober, and make him wait, and dramatize this request that you're going to issue. 
And unless you cross the line between his patience and his kindness, you will usually get a more serious response than if you hit the poor man who just missed getting killed because the little old lady pulled out in front of him a block ago, and you ask him at the door. You know what usually happens when you ask him at the door for something. This is just common sense. Dramatize, not unnecessarily. I mean, could you dramatize the fact that your whole nation and race is going to be exterminated? It was obviously a serious matter, but she makes it serious to the king who doesn't know about it yet. She makes it serious by delaying him somewhat. There's another reason for the delay, and that's in the providence of God. God wanted there to be 24 hours in between the first banquet of wine and the second banquet of wine. Do you know why? He had things planned for Haman. Two reasons. One, a practical reason from Esther's standpoint. Two, a very divine reason from God's standpoint. He had some things in store for Haman. Let's look at Haman, who is the enemy of the Jews and who wants to exterminate them all in all the 127 provinces of the Persian Empire. Verse 9. Then went Haman forth that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. This man has a bittersweet life, doesn't he? It's sweet for a minute. I mean, Esther invited him to a banquet of wine with the king, and no one else was invited. And you can, you can see him bouncing, if he's touching the floor at all, out of the royal house. And then he sees that hated Jew Mordecai, who will not bow to him. And it tears him up. That man is living with, with joy on one side and hate on the other, and it's eating him up. Look at verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself. Haman thought everything was coming up roses for a while. It looked that way, didn't it? Let me remind you, we're not, I have a string of verses here that take us until 8 o'clock. I don't know why I get so ambitious sometimes, but anyway, the Lord sometimes brings prosperity to his enemies before he brings them down. And you've, I wanted to give you, a, you know, ten proofs or so from different examples in Scripture of how he does that. When someone wants to be God's enemy, see, God thinks it scorn just to let him fall there. See, Haman thought it scorn just to take Mordecai. Well, God thought it scorn just to take Haman without elevating him and letting him think that he was something first. All of you know the story of the Exodus out of Egypt, when Moses led all of the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. Now, when Pharaoh was born to his parents, did God know that he was going to drown Pharaoh in the Red Sea? Unless you're an atheist, yes. God knew that he was going to drown that Pharaoh in the Red Sea. Why did God take him to the pinnacle of power in the Egyptian empire? So that he would have farther to fall. Why? Because the only way you can show your superiority 
is to knock off, if you will, someone else who is as superior as an opponent as you can get. How do you measure the medal of any team? How do you measure how good a, an athletic team is? By pitting them against the best. How does God show his superiority and sovereignty over men? By taking on the best. At the time of Moses, who was the greatest monarch and single individual in the world? Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I mean, when Moses came in and said, the Lord God had said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? He thought he was pretty big, didn't he? Do we have proof that God raised Pharaoh up for the purpose of knocking him down? Where would we find it? Romans chapter 9 and verse 17, God said, for this same purpose have I raised thee up that I, my name might be declared throughout all the earth. How is the name of a sports team declared throughout all the earth? If it's a football team, it's because they won the Super Bowl. What does winning the Super Bowl mean? It means they beat the next best team. When God knocked off Pharaoh, it meant that he was king of kings and lord of lords, didn't it? Now, he's not going to let Morde uh, Haman excuse me, get away with just being a lowly servant. He had him promoted, I read in chapter 3 and verse 1, to the second position in the kingdom. And now he gives him a 24-hour reprieve to really feel good about himself. Why? The Lord needs some gallows built. And he doesn't want just anyone to build those gallows. I love the Lord of Esther chapter 5. I love the Lord of Esther chapter 5, that all the world may know that thou alone art Jehovah. Listen, we can go through a lot of th circumstances, can't we, brother? If we know Esther chapter 5 and the rest of this book that's supposed to give us hope. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself. And when he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh, his wife. And Haman told them of the glory of it. Now, just listen to this man. This is tough to even imagine. He sits down with all his friends and his wife, and here's their supper table. Here's the topics of conversation that night. Haman told them of the glory of his riches. I mean, he pulled out his savings book and read off the bank balance to everyone, friends and wife included. He pulled out his account statement from Merrill Lynch and read off what he owned with that investment firm. I'm speaking figuratively, obviously. As he gives a record of his riches and the multitude of his children. I mean, can you imagine his wife as she sits there and he looks around the table and boasts for the number of children he has. And she's putting her head down. The poor woman's the one that had to bear them all. He's bragging about his children in front of his wife and his friends. Not anything wrong with being thankful to God for the children we have. Haman's not exactly thankful to God. Haman's thankful to himself and wants everyone else to be recognizing what he has done. Haman told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children and all the things wherein the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. He's basically giving a resume here to his friends and wife. Haman said, moreover, 
Now this is what this was the icing on the cake. Yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king unto her banquet that she had prepared but myself. And tomorrow am I invited unto her also with the king. Can't you see his head? It was this big. It was this big. Thinking about what Esther was doing for him and how great he was becoming. Listen, there was so much respect of authority in the Persian Empire, it'd be hard to be number two and not think this way. Listen, when men are falling at your feet and worshiping you like a deity, it would be easy to think this way. And then he says in verse 13, Yet, you can just see him clench his fists and his veins pop out, Yet all this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. He's being torn apart by his hatred for Mordecai. Let me, while you keep your finger in Esther 5, show you a few verses about verse 11. Now, verse 11 said that Haman gloried in his riches, his children, and his promotion. Do, do riches, children, and promotion mean anything as far as God's blessing? Do they prove God's blessing? Keeping your finger there, look at Psalm 73 and verse 12. Psalm 73 and verse 12. David writes. No, David doesn't write. Asaph writes in Psalm 73, 12. All those psalms get me. I mean, you read Psalm 90 and you talk about David and you look at the beginning and it said Moses. Psalm 73 and verse 12. Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world they increase in riches. Haman glories in his riches. God says, riches are proof of nothing. Well, riches may be proof of something, of ungodliness, because it is the wicked that increase in riches generally as a rule. He gloried in his children. Look at Job 21. Job chapter 21. Job chapter 21, look at verse 7. Wherefore do the wicked live, become old, yea, are mighty in power? Their seed is established in their sight with them, and their offspring before their eyes. They have children and descendants. Look at verse 11. They send forth their little ones like a flock, and their children dance. I mean, they've got so many little ones, you could call it a flock when they send them outside to play. Now, I can do that. I mean, when I tell my kids to go outside and play and they hit the yard, it looks like kindergarten let out <laughs> as they go running across the yard. I mean, I, don't, I know what Job 21 and verse 11 means. They send them forth like a flock and their children dance. They have children, and what kind of children do they have? Happy children. He's glorying in his children, and is that any evidence of a righteous man? No. The wicked have children like that. He glories in his promotion. Let me refer you again to what the Bible says of Pharaoh. Even for this same purpose have I... What is that? Promotion. Promotion. Poor Haman. He's glorying in the wrong things right here in verse 11. Yet all this availeth me nothing so long as I see that Mordecai there who doesn't do me reverence. Now I want to make a comment about anger. I, try to, I want to make practical points where I can. 
if God will have mercy on me and you people will forgive me for always talking about what I'm going to preach and sometimes taking a while getting there, I have a series of messages I want to preach to you on the Bible and physical health. The Bible has a lot to say about our bodies, the food we eat, and how we ought to take care of them. One thing the Bible makes very clear is that anger and hatred will destroy you. The Bible's filled with information about the evil of anger and hatred. Now, you shouldn't have to read a whole lot. When you get angry, I mean very angry, some of you, it takes a whole lot to get you angry. Some of us, and notice my use of pronouns, some of us can get angry sooner than others. Let me put it that way. When you get angry, everything tenses up in your body, blood vessels get tight, and your heart gets tight, and you're tightening everything up in your body, and eventually that kind of behavior will destroy you. Now, the Bible's a practical book. I read in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26, Be ye angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. You be like Haman, you live like Haman, with anger and hatred and trying to get even and jealousy and malice in your heart, and you sleep with that, you won't sleep. The sleep that God has designed for you, it'll destroy you. You know, the Bible puts it this way. The Bible says it's better to have dandelion greens with love than to have a steak dinner with hatred. Does it say that? Something to that effect, doesn't it? In Proverbs chapter 15, Proverbs chapter 15, keeping your finger at Esther, this is a practical point. Another series of messages that I have promised before on temperament types. Certain temperament types are more susceptible to anger, more quickly can get angry, can hold that anger longer, have more impatient, have less patience than others. They need to guard against this in particular. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 17 says, Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. I mean, it's better to have just a few herbs with love than to have a stalled ox and hatred therewith. Look at chapter 17 and verse 1. Better is a dry morsel and quietness therewith than in house full of sacrifices with strife. See Haman sitting down, and what is eating him? His hatred of Mordecai. Whenever you hate someone, guess who is the master and who is the slave? When you hate someone. They are the master and you are the slave. They control you wherever you go and whatever you try to do. You try to sit down and have a good meal. They're on your mind and they torment you because you have anger and hatred toward, toward them. And it'll tear you up. You say, you look pretty angry and full of hate right now. No, I'm not. I'm just trying to make a point. You know what, you know what I'm talking about. The object of your hatred becomes your master. You can't sleep. He's on your mind. You lay there in bed trying to think of ways you can do him in. When you see him, it's an automatic jolt to your adrenaline glands, which floods your system when you don't need to have adrenaline flooding your system. Anger and hatred inside will destroy you. 
Haman is filled with it, eats him. Notice, he comes out after a banquet of wine. It tears him up. There's the emotions, the conflict he has inside. Who is the master of Haman? Mordecai. He goes home. His whole family's sitting there. He's telling them all the great things that he's accomplished. And then, what's the bottom line? He has to tell them about Mordecai because it's eating him alive. Watch that. We're going to run into people in our lives, whether it's at business, whether it's family members, whether it's some neighbor who drives us crazy with loud noise at night or whatever it might be. You're going to have people come into your lives that upset you. Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Get rid of it. It will eat you up. More on that later. All this availeth me nothing, he says in Esther chapter 5 and verse 13, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then said Zeresh, verse 14, his wife and all his friends unto him, Let a gallows be made of fifty cubits high, and tomorrow speak thou unto the king that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go thou in merrily with the king unto the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallows to be made. Now, he's just come from one banquet of wine. He has another one 24 hours later. He's frustrated with the fact that Mordecai is still living. And they say to him, well, make yourself some gallows this afternoon. Go into the king, get permission to hang Mordecai, have him hung before the next banquet of wine, and you can go in there merrily and enjoy it. And you won't be torn up over the fact that Mordecai is still sitting in the gate and he didn't bow to you this morning. And Haman says, that sounds like a good idea. And I don't know where they got the construction men from or if they had a helicopter come in with that gallows, but they built it in one day. Impressive. You say, well, how high is 50 cubits? 75 feet. Impressive. When you could uh, contribute 10,000 talents of silver to the king's treasury for the extermination of a race, I guess you could afford a few talents for the construction of gallows also unless the Persians had a different cubit than the Hebrews did. I mean, maybe it was only 20 feet high. Anyway, it was high enough to get the job done. He likes the idea, so he has the gallows constructed. His plan is this. Tomorrow morning, after the gallows are constructed this afternoon, he goes into the king. King and the king, you know, they're buddies. He's going to get whatever he wants from the king. No problem there. There's not even a question about that. King, i got to hang Mordecai. I mean, the man's disobeying your commandment to do me reverence, so forth, so on. Take him out, hang him, and then he can meet his appointment, make, keep his appointment with, the, with Esther to be there at the banquet, and he can enjoy it. He can sit back and relax because now everyone is reverencing him, and Mordecai is gone, and he still knows that in the twelfth month of the year, on the thirteenth day, he'll get rid of the rest of the Jews. Okay? That's his plan. God has other plans. Chapter 6. Chapter 6. Oh, my brethren, the Lord had other plans. On that night, while Haman is pleased with his idea as he lays in bed thinking of Mordecai swinging at the end of a rope on his gallows that he just built. On that night could not the king sleep. 
Insomnia. We take medicine for it. Insomnia. Something God brought King Ahasuerus. You say it doesn't say that. It doesn't say God did anything in this book. Chapter 6 and verse 1. On that night could not the king sleep. And he commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles. <laughs> and they were read before the king. Now, we can exonerate King Ahasuerus here, and I'm speaking lightly. We could exonerate him here that he just wanted to have a review of what had taken place in the first 12 years of his reign. Or we could say that the king knew that the greatest thing to read to put you to sleep was the records of the Persian Empire. I mean, have you ever read the congressional record? It's about the, it's about the size of a decent telephone book every day. Every day that thing comes out. The congressional record. All the subcommittees and committees and the interchange that's gone on in our government. I mean, if they've declared it's a national day for the bumblebee in the state of Hawaii, President Reagan's speech will be in there. And here's Ahasuerus in the middle of the night having his servants read to him the books of the Chronicles of the Persian Empire, either trying to find sleep or just making a review of the empire since he couldn't sleep. Verse 2, And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, There is nothing done for him. Here's my God at work. Three things happened that night. Ahasuerus can't sleep. Ahasuerus decides, instead of sending to the house of women, he sends for the book of the records of the chronicles of the kings of Persia. Third, he happens to turn those gigantic books to the page where Mordecai's event is found. Now you say, well, it doesn't say God did any of that. Well, why don't you go home and plug it into your computer and see what the probability is of those events taking place? And if you want to use the size of the books, use our congressional record. They had 127 provinces. I'll bet there was a decent degree of business done in the Persian Empire. He couldn't sleep. He chose the books. Oh, listen, he could have asked for music to be played. He could have asked for anything. He could have asked for some warm milk and a piece of toast. I mean, isn't that what some Americans do? Isn't it warm milk that helps them go to sleep at night? He could have asked for anything. Notice what happens. And that event that the Holy Spirit stuck in back over here in chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, where Mordecai the Jew discovered the conspiratorial plot against the king is now discovered. Now, why did God cause the king to be absent-minded in chapter 2 and to immediately think, well, what was done for Mordecai in chapter 6? The God of heaven and earth, whose name alone is Jehovah. He's got plans, and they're big plans. Verses 1 through 3, Mordecai's faithfulness in the government has been discovered by the king, and the king finds out that nothing was done for Mordecai. Verse 4, And the king said, Who is in the court? Who is in the court? Now Haman was come into the outward court of the king's house, 
to speak unto the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Now, friends, here's the situation. The king couldn't sleep. It is the middle of the night. He's laying there, sitting there, standing there, whatever. He's got a couple servants reading to him the books of the chronicles of the records of the Persian Empire. When he finds out about Mordecai and his faithfulness and the fact that he had never been rewarded for his loyalty, he asks a question. Who is here? He needs a man. And he needs a ranking man. Now, why is it that a man named Haman was there? Why was Haman there so early in the morning? Because that man had woken up at 4.30 that day. I'm telling you, he woke up so early. Today was the day he's going to have Mordecai swinging from the gallows. Can you imagine that? He's there early. He's the only one there. Because he's after Mordecai. He's coming to speak to the king so that he can go back, have Mordecai strung up, have his hands cleaned, and dressed for the banquet of wine. He's, he's busy. He's got a busy day planned. And so far, it's going well. He's got the right idea. Things go from bad, things go from good to bad, and then from bad to worse, as we'll see here. And the king's servant said unto him in verse 5, Behold, Haman standeth in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. He's a great man. He's just what I needed. A ranking officer. In fact, he's the highest officer in my kingdom. As you're going to see, that's what he needs. He wants a good recommendation from someone who should know how men are to be treated. Some of you may wonder why I laugh about the Bible. I wonder why you don't. This is the God of the Bible. Amen. And if this God doesn't give you hope to take Monday through Saturday, nothing will. Nothing will. I mean, I can read this, and my wife will witness that I can come bursting out of my office like, you know, some laughing gas hit me. Loving the Word of God and what it describes that God can do with men who think they're bigger than God and can wipe out his people. So Haman came in. Verse 6. So Haman came in. Was he smiling? Listen, ear to ear. He had, he had gallows 50 cubits high in his backyard. He's there bright and early. He's going to be dining with Esther that day. Yes, he will be. He'll be dining with Esther that day. Mordecai will be hung. He's a great man. And now the king's asking for him. Everything's going great, isn't it? So Haman came in. And the king said unto him, Why did the king say this? Think about it. I ask, listen, when I read the Bible, every verse, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Especially the book of Esther. Why did this happen? Why did the king say this? I mean, was his mind impotent? You don't think the king could think of anything to do to some man who had saved his life? I mean, they probably did have the Persian Medal of Honor. Why did he have to ask? The Lord be magnified. And the king said unto him, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor. Now Haman thought in his heart, 
To whom would the king delight to do honor? More than to myself. <laughs> I mean, it's getting better. The day started off well, and it's getting better. I mean, the king's asking me, whatever I want, you know, what ought to be done? I've got to be that man. There couldn't be anyone else. It's got to be me. And in his pride, he's totally blinded to any reservation. What does the Bible say? And this is a little off the track of a direct application, but the principle is very valid. When you are invited to a feast, do you go sit in the place of honor? Or do you tarry at the door or, or sit in the lowest seat and be brought forward? Haman has none of that reservation. Do you see that? He automatically assumes he is going to get the honor. Don't ever take for yourself that. Let others give you that honor. It's much better to have the, the uh, host in front of everyone point you out down there at the end of the table and say, I want you to sit up here beside me. I mean, that is honor. But if you're up there and an important guest comes in and he says, Brother, I hate to say this to you, but would you please go down here and sit because I want so-and-so to sit here. Listen, that's humiliating. I mean, the Bible tells you to think before you take any honor to yourself. Notice that Haman had none of that. His pride had blinded his reservation. Now Haman thought in his heart, to whom would the king delight to do honor more than to myself? And Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delighteth to honor, his thumbs went under his suspenders as he said it. Can't you see him just swelling up? For the man, you know, he might have fainted a little humility talking about himself. For the man whom the king delighteth to honor, let the royal apparel be brought, which the king useth to wear, and the horse that the king rideth upon, and the crown royal which is set upon his head. And let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man withal whom the king delighteth to honor, and bring him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor. Let me ask another question. Why did Haman give that answer? Why did Haman give an answer that required another noble prince's participation? Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You say, I don't think it's very reverent for you to be laughing. I read in Psalm 2, The Lord shall laugh. He shall have them in derision. Who are they? The kings of the earth who think they're going to cast the bands of God from them. And what does God say? I will laugh. He shall laugh. He shall have them in derision. Psalm 2. I'm doing what God's doing. God's taking great delight in us studying the book of Esther. It's his word. Why didn't you hear him saying amen while we were praying a half an hour ago? I did. Didn't you? I read in Scripture that thunders the voice of God. Chapter 6. Why would Haman give an answer 
that required another noble prince's participation because God has plans on who that noble prince will be. Who has everything going for him. The gallows are built. Mordecai is to be hung. He's got an invitation with Esther and the king. The king wants him now. And now on top of all of this, the king wants to honor me. And then he tells the king what he'd really like. I mean, I can have Mordecai hung. Then I can take a quick trip through the streets with someone announcing that I'm the one the king wants to honor, and then I can be at the banquet of wine. Can you see that rushing through his head and what kind of an expression that would put on his face? Verse 10. His day now turns, takes a turn for the worse. Then the king said to Haman, Make haste and take the apparel and the horse as thou hast said, and do even so to Mordecai the Jew that sitteth at the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. That's an excellent idea, Haman. That is an excellent idea. Now go execute it. And don't let a single thing fail. Do it all. Get the crown. Get the horse. Get the apparel. And make sure you say it all just right. Tell me about his face. Tell me about the face of Haman. Humiliated. Humiliated. Can you imagine how far he fell in one verse? Verse 11. Then took Haman the apparel and the horse and arrayed Mordecai. Now, can you imagine these two men getting on the horse? I mean, one man getting on the horse and the other helping him and getting him arrayed. The hatred between those two you know, here's Haman holding out the royal robe. Stick your, putting it on Mordecai. Getting him on the horse, you know. Let me give you a boost. Get him up on the horse. Listen, when the king says to do something, it doesn't matter how much you hate the man. You go do it. Haman is not giving Mordecai a whole lot of grief. He's getting him on the horse. He's putting him in the royal apparel. He's doing it right. Notice what it says. He didn't leave anything out and brought him on horseback through the street of the city and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor. Here's Haman, gallows in his backyard for Mordecai. A decree's been issued. Everyone knows that Haman's the source of the decree. All the Jews are to be exterminated because of Mordecai. Here's Mordecai, royal apparel, crown on the king's horse, and Haman's giving him honor through the streets of Shushan. The perplexed city was having a great time. It doesn't tell us much about the city, but you people are a city, and if you were there, you know they were having a great time. The people that were perplexed at what Ahasuerus and Haman had plotted against the Jews were now having pleasant perplexion as they looked at Haman honoring Mordecai. Verse 12. And Mordecai came again to the king's gate. But Haman hasted to his house, mourning and having his head covered. I mean, you talk about a paper bag. He found one. He went home, mourning, head covered. He didn't want anyone to see him. He had just... If I gave you an hour to sit here, all of you together, could you have come up with a better way to have humiliated Haman? That is infinite wisdom. 
you, I, I mean, you couldn't have done more to Haman. Absolute humility right here. Haman hasted to his house mourning and having his head covered. Verse 13, And Haman told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had befallen him. Now watch. Keep watching. Don't let anything go by. Then said his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, unto him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but shalt surely fall before him. Now he comes home, and remember, a home is a man's castle. It's where a man can come after he's been fired at work, demoted at work, abused at work, abused by friends. He can come home and find comfort from his wife and friends. Isn't that what a home is for? Isn't that where a man goes for comfort? The man comes home and sits down and tells them all the bad things that happened to him that day, needing to have his ego stroked. And they say, listen, if Mordecai is a Jew before whom you've started to fall, there's no way you're going to stand before him. It's all over. That is what they said. It's all over. Notice the words of the Holy Ghost. And you know what I entitle this chapter? Well, I entitle a couple chapters this, The Timing of Esther. Notice the timing in verse 14. And while they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains and hasted to bring Haman unto the banquet that Esther had prepared. Is God the great master when it comes to designing circumstances? Did No one needed to synchronize watches, but were all watches synchronized. While they were yet talking, what were they saying? It's over. It's over. There's no way you can stand before him now. If he's a Jew and he's just been honored like that, based on the decree that you've sent out, guess what's going to happen to you? I mean, that's all embodied in that statement. It's all over. And while he's receiving the shock that even his own friends have said it's all over, while he was still hearing it, they came to take him to the banquet. And he wasn't going merrily as he had planned. Now, you think it's bad? It gets worse. This is, I call chapter 6 and verse 14, deja vu Pharaoh. Do you know what I mean by that? When Pharaoh was in the midst of the Red Sea, all of you should remember the story of Pharaoh following the Israelites down into the path between the Red Sea. He's on dry ground. You know, it took a great deal of courage, or should we call it foolishness, to go in there. The water is stacked for hundreds, thousands, we don't know, feet on each side. It's quivering there, and Pharaoh's down the middle. Now, God could have just let the water close over Pharaoh and drown him, right? It would happen quickly. Less than 60 seconds, it'd be all over. What did God do? Took the wheels off the chariots. Deja vu, Pharaoh. Why did his servant say to him, it's all over? To put him in a great state of fear even before his very end. Do you follow what I'm saying? Deja vu, Pharaoh. This is God's way of dealing with men who are so cruel that they will plan to exterminate an innocent people. And I love that God. 
chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman came to banquet with Esther the queen. I wonder how he was looking now. And the king said again unto Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine. This is the second banquet, but it's the third time King Ahasuerus makes these statements. What is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee. What is thy request? And it shall be performed even to the half of the kingdom. Then Esther the queen answered and said, it was God's timing now for her to say what she has to say. If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. She tells the king, save my life I'm based on my request. Now the queen has found favor in the eyes of the king, and that's quite a shock to him to have her request for the salvation of her life so that she can be saved. I'm sure he's perplexed at the end of verse 3. Well, she doesn't stop there. She says in verse 4, For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. She quotes all the words from the decree. You have to remember how descript the decree was. She just doesn't say to be killed. She says to be killed, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen, now here's her humility before the king, but if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Now this is slick. What's she saying? She's, she's showing her humility to the king. If the Jews would simply have been sold into slavery to be bondmen and bondwomen, I wouldn't have bothered you. You're a great king. I wouldn't have bothered you with my petition, but it's for our lives. It's not just that we're going to be sold into slavery. It's that we're going to be exterminated. Now, that would get your affection, wouldn't it, and tenderness toward her? And then she adds a little financial footnote. The little financial footnote is, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage, if the Jews had been sold as bondmen and bondwomen, the damage to the king's treasury would have been greater than the 10,000 talents of silver Haman offered to pay. That is what she is saying. Remember, Mordecai sent her word about the sum that Haman, Haman had offered to pay. And the word countervail means equal or set a matching amount. The, the king, our enemy, the enemy, she hasn't named him yet, Haman, could not have paid for what the loss that you would have suffered because of the Jews. The Jews were an industrious people, for the most part. I mean, that industry has got them in trouble in later days. We all know that, and the Bible said God would do that to them. He'd make their table a snare and a stumbling block to them, but they were industrious people. And she she's adds this little financial footnote using all the force she can. She's waited 30 hours. She appeals to him very wisely. She appeals for her life at his favor. She says, if we had been sold as bond women and bond men, I wouldn't have said anything. And she says, the enemy could not have compensated you for the damages. You've been deceived into an, a bad financial transaction, is basically what she said. Now, the king has had this build up for 30 days. 
you know, what in the world does his wife want, his queen? And now she says it's her life. Someone has sold her to death, and it's up to the king to save her life. And not only that, the damage to the king's treasuries was greater than had been presented to him. Now we know something about Ahasuerus. He can get angry, don't we? Chapter 1, we know that he can get angry. He gets angry. Then the king Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen. Now if you can't visualize him already getting anger, angry, you can't read. Notice what he says. Who is he? A man who's angry has another question to ask. Where is he? <laughs> you know, if you're, just, if you're taking it very calmly, who is he, Esther? Oh, we can handle this. Don't worry about a thing. You can just see the steam already rising in Ahasuerus. Who is he? And where is he? Uh, what's that there for? Where is he? That just presume in his heart to do so. Now notice the anger rising where Ahasuerus would call it a presumption on a man to do something against the queen of Persia to take her life. Who is he, where is he, that would presume something like that? What do you think Haman was thinking at this moment? <laughs> Uh-oh. It can't be put into words. It can't be put into words. Belshazzar did it physically. It says his loins were loosed and his knees knocked. I remember when the, when the hand came out on the wall and wrote, I mean, his loins were loose and his knees knocked. Words can't describe the terror. You think Haman knew that Ahasuerus could get angry. Do you think Haman understood that Ahasuerus could kill people for minor infractions? Do you think Haman understood that an attempt on the queen's life was not a minor infraction? And Esther said, the moment of truth. God brought Esther all the way to this seat for this and other deeds that she did. The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. She's a Jew. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, why didn't I check out her papers? She's a Jew. This wicked Haman. Now, here's, what does a man do when he's angry and he has some sensibility? He'll try to walk away for a minute to cool down, right? I mean, go out and get some fresh air. That's what exactly what the king does. Verse 7, And the king arising from the banquet of wine, in his wrath, went into the palace garden. <laughs> and Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen. Now who's begging who? an Amalekite begging a Jewish woman for his life. For he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. I mean, he knew Ahasuerus. That king was so angry, he was just out there trying to collect his thoughts on how he was going to do it, not if he was going to do it. You say, how do you know that? Haman knew that evil was determined. I mean, it was all over. It was determined. And he's afraid. And he's begging Esther. It gets better. 
I think the next verse is great. Then the king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine. Now remember the Persians didn't sit at a table in back chairs like we do. They're on couches, which were called beds. This is hilarious. Why'd the king walk back in at this moment? Haman is begging Esther for his life. Esther happens to be reclined on her bed, which was a couch, as they were eating at her banquet of wine. Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was. You can imagine him on his knees on the floor, his arms on the edge of that thing, imploring her, he would be on the bed, for his life. The king walks back in and sees Haman on the same couch with his wife, the queen. Then said the king, Will he force the queen also before me in the house? I mean, wasn't it enough? Wasn't it enough that he wanted to have her killed? Now he's going to rape her in my presence in my own house? Now, can you imagine Haman when words like that come out of the king's mouth? What do you think happened to men who raped the queen? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. I mean, no jury. They didn't need anything more but a bag. How many of you have seen a hanging? Remember how they put the bag over their heads? Many times or an execution at the firing squad, they'll put the bag over their heads. The chamberlains are standing there. They know the king. And as soon as he says something like that, there goes the bag right over Haman's head. I mean, it's over. I th Why'd the Holy Ghost record something like that? For what you're doing right now, you're rejoicing in the God who's able to turn someone like Haman into a quivering man who makes some terrible blunders in his last moments. As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Verse 9, And Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold also the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. Now, that didn't take a whole lot of deliberation before a congressional committee, did it? Hang him thereon. That's all. What did Esther say? My life is at risk. The lives of my people are at risk. Does Ahasuerus know at this time that Mordecai and Esther are cousins? No. Does the king know that Mordecai's life is in danger? Not yet. Not yet. Nothing has been said about the Jews yet. So this Chamberlain just happens to throw on a little bit of extra information. Not, and behold, behold also is the word that's used. In addition to what Esther's just informed you about Haman, he's got some gallows down at his house that he's planning to hang Mordecai on that six hours ago you read about in the Chronicles and just honored in the streets because he saved your life. What do you think of that, king? You know, the chamberlains are really getting into the act, too. Then the king said, hang him thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. 
we're going to close there this evening. We're going to close there this evening through chapter 7. We covered three chapters this evening. That's quite a record, isn't it, for the book of Esther? <laughs> Five sermons through the first four chapters and three chapters this evening. Why do we study? I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 83. Why we study the book of Esther and why it is written for our study. Why did God put that story there? Why were you laughing? I wish to God I had been raised in a church where I could have had so much pleasure in the Word of God. I might have read it when I was a teenager. I had no purpose for it. I didn't see anything enjoyable about it. Now the book's the most enjoyable reading there is. It's truth. It's not fiction. It's God dealing in affairs, and it's humorous. I've got a chapter here entitled The Humor of Esther. No humor in chapter 7? Psalm chapter 83, we read that this morning. I just want to remind you what it was about. Was not the 83rd Psalm Asaph, who was the choir leader and the band leader for the nation of Israel, wasn't it him recounting some of God's dealings with enemy kings? Wasn't Sisera named, who was uh, tacked to the ground in a certain tent by Jael the Kenite? Wasn't Sisera mentioned? And Zeba, and Zalmunna, and Zeb, and Oreb, and others that God destroyed. See, Asaph's going down through them, hoping that as the people would sing and read this psalm, and the instruments would be playing in the Old Testament, they would remember all of God's deliverances of his people, and the God, the God they worshipped. And in the last verse, he tells them exactly why all of this was prepared for them. Notice, in speaking of the wicked, he says in verse 15, So persecute them with thy tempest, and make them afraid with thy storm. Did Haman have anything to be afraid of as number two in the nation? No. Until God made him afraid. Right here. The 15th verse. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Was the face of Haman filled with shame? How about when he came back from the horse's stable after helping Mordecai dismount? It says he covered his head and went mourning back to his house. Verse 17, let them be confounded. Was he confounded when the king came back in and found him on the queen's bed? Let them be confounded and troubled forever. Yea, let them be put to shame and perish. Is that what happened to him? So they hung Haman. Why did God do that? Why did God record that? And why would a choir in a church ever stand up and sing that? That men may know that thou, whose name alone is Jehovah, art the most high over all the earth. Raise them up and take them down. Before a fall, pride cometh. Humble yourselves underneath the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you when you please in due time. In due time. Will Mordecai be exalted? We didn't look at the eighth chapter. Yes, he will. He'll take Haman's place. Humble yourselves beneath the mighty hand of God, and he shall exalt you. Lift yourselves up, and he'll grind you to powder.
He'll shame you. He'll make you afraid, and He'll cause you to perish, and He'll do it to prove that He alone is the Most High in all the earth. Worship God with me. Amen.